You're listening to the Domecast, where news and observer journalists take a look back and forward in North Carolina politics. overheated, soon-to-be-demolished headquarters of the News and Observer. It's Welcome to Domecast. I'm Colin Campbell from the NC Insider. Uh, Joining the panel this week, we've got Lauren Horsch from the Insider, Will Doran from the News and Observer, and Andy Spey from the News and Observer, uh, all joining us to go through what's been a fairly quiet week here in North Carolina politics, comparatively. We still are a a month or so out from the start of the legislative session, so a few legislative committee meetings uh, trying to come up with some kind of recommended legislation and things of that nature, but nothing terribly earth-shattering yet. All the exciting stuff uh, probably still yet to come. Uh, Some more action this week in the uh, legislature versus uh, the governor uh, on a couple of different fronts. Um, And we also have some uh, action involving the the National Guard, as well as some uh, developments on Hurricane Matthews recovery that we've looked into this week. Uh, So a fair amount to talk about even on a quiet week. Uh, So let's start out uh, with uh, Lauren, who wrote this week a little bit. Uh, about the latest in the Atlantic Coast Pipeline uh, mitigation fund, or if you prefer slush fund drama that's been going on between uh, Governor Cooper and the legislature. Uh, Lauren, what's the the latest in this uh, war of words and various other things slinging back and forth between uh, the two sides on this? I think war of words is a good way to uh, term it because there's just a lot of angry letters flying around. Um, This week, I mean, this week, we had, or I should say this week and last week, um, we saw letters from both the Democrats and the Republicans in the General Assembly, but they weren't sent to the media. They were instead sent to county commissioners and uh, school board leaders in the eight counties where the Atlantic Coast Pipeline is, and they were, and the Democrats specifically sent this letter first on March 29th. Um, and in that letter, it was written by uh, House Democratic Leader Darren Jackson and uh, the Senate Democratic Whip uh, Terry Van Dyne, um, and they asked these school leaders and these community leaders to, you know, urge House Speaker Tim Moore, Senate Leader Phil Berger, and their local legislators to repeal the first section of House Bill 90. Now, that first section of House Bill 90 is what took the slush fund slash mitigation fund, um, which is about $58 million, and moved it from, you know, being used for economic development, um, mitigation purposes, and there was job creation stuff in there, too, um, and move it from that purpose over to the schools in those eight counties. Um, so the Democrats sent their letter on the 29th, and then the Republicans followed up this week, a couple days ago, maybe this third or the fourth, I can't remember anymore. Um, but they followed up with their own letter saying, you know, the Democrats are saying this, but it was a wholly bipartisan bill. Um, you know, this is all the research. And so they basically were just, you know, serving shots back and forth. It's been a very interesting volley um, going on between these two parties. So the hope is, I guess, to get some sort of like proxy lobbying war wherein you have uh, county commissioners or school boards in these counties taking sides as to uh, which uh, state politicians' use of the money is the, the better way to go. Yeah, and this is the first time we'd even heard the suggestion of repealing that first part of House Bill 90, which hadn't been floated. And there was some confusion yesterday when um, – House Speaker Tim Moore and Senate Leader Phil Berger released their letter because they sent their letter to the media. Uh, The Democrats did not send their letter. So I know I had to personally go hunting, and apparently there were some members of the Democratic House Caucus that also had to go hunting for this letter because they did not know about it. So there's just a lot of confusion still there. And, you know, we still don't know if anyone's going to be subpoenaed to talk about the 
the Yeah, that was the pipeline. threat, right, for the yeah. Cooper administration people to get potentially subpoenaed or there'd be some kind of legislative hearing held. And so, so far, far, nothing. Yeah. It's been pretty quiet, and this was probably – we hadn't heard much about the pipeline in maybe two, three weeks. I don't remember. It finally quieted down, and then all of a sudden these letters came out. So bring it back into the forefront. Yeah, so we'll see what happens with that next and whether any of these uh, local leaders actually come to Raleigh in the short session to – way on one way or the other. I've seen a couple of supportive comments in local media about uh, the legislature's bill just because some of these uh, folks who are trying to get money for their schools are happy about that angle, whereas I think the original mitigation uh, fund plan wasn't that fleshed out yet as to exactly where the money would go, so people couldn't necessarily know if if they're going to be the big beneficiary or not. Uh, But with the schools, it's a little bit more clear exactly where it will go. So we'll see what happens. Uh, Probably not much uh, of an effort to, or much of a political climate towards repealing that, but I imagine we may see some bills filed at least to to that effect, uh, even if they don't go anywhere. Uh, So thanks for that. Uh, Speaking of eastern North Carolina, um, Hurricane Matthew, a little bit back in the news, uh, mostly because I finally uh, got down east a little bit to see how the recovery effort was going. It's been almost 18 months since uh, the storm hit eastern North Carolina, uh, and the recovery has been kind of uneven. I went down to Seven Springs, which is this tiny little town of uh, originally about 100 or so people uh, in Wayne County right along the Neuse River, uh, flooded out during Matthew. Uh, as of a couple weeks ago when I was there, uh, one of the restaurants is back open. There's a, a river uh, bait and outfitter store that's just recently opened in the last few weeks uh, that had been closed for a while. One of the restaurants still not open. And then there was a couple of storefronts that just looked like the storm had hit uh, almost yesterday. There's one where uh, the front facade is kind of bashed in and you can kind of see some like uh, half uh, overturned office desks in the space and very little been done with that. Uh, you walk around the neighborhoods. A lot of people are still living in campers or RVs in their backyard, um, haven't been able to fix up their houses yet. Uh, I'm told the uh, major problem for this is FEMA, that uh, the state didn't until uh, last October actually submit uh, the grant request to FEMA for people who are trying to get uh, their property bought out because it's uh, in a flood zone, people who want their property elevated to uh, avoid future flooding, uh, and people who just need FEMA money for uh, repairs to their homes. Uh, that is all uh, in FEMA's hands now, and uh, the word is uh, towards the middle to, uh, to the late end of this year, uh, that money should come along. But of course, by that point, we're almost two years out from the storm, and a lot of people are uh, not terribly happy to have that long of a wait. Uh, it also leads to the uncertainty for a town like Seven Springs of uh, how many people are coming back. Do they have enough people to sustain a, a municipality and the services that go along with that? Uh, all that sort of remains to be seen uh, as people are in limbo with FEMA. Um, also heard hearing a little bit more about the uh, National Guard's response to Hurricane Matthew this week. And Will, you've been looking into that as to how the Guard has uh, spent its money during and after Hurricane Matthew. So what's the deal there? Yeah, there was an issue with around $40,000 in overspending on uh, money that, uh, you know, probably should have been used on other uh, recovery efforts that uh, instead went to salaries uh, for people from the National Guard who responded uh, to uh, really the immediate aftermath of Hurricane Matthew in uh, late October and throughout November. Um, that was uh, an audit that was l- released on Thursday by the state, uh, by Beth Wood's office, and yeah, found 38000 and some odd uh, dollars were overspent on inflated salaries for people in the National Guard. Basically what happened is there's a law that says the National Guard has to be paid the same as uh, the active duty military whenever the governor calls them into action for things like this, and we just didn't follow that law. Um, something like 
91% of all of the Guard's members who were deployed, there were around 12 or 1,300 people who were deployed to help with the recovery relief. About, you know, basically all of them, 91% were paid more than they should have been paid. Um, that being said, uh, you know, it only did in the end amount to $40,000 out of the hundreds of millions of dollars that have been spent on this recovery. You know, the state's not telling these people that they need to give the money back. Um, you know, that would be, uh, you know, probably not a very popular thing, you know, for these people who, you know, were taken away from their families from all over the state, you know, spent days. Sorry, we paid you too much. <laughs> give us some of that back. Yeah, spent days, you know, wandering around in flooded waters with who knows what, you know, floating around them. And, you know, then now, you know, a year and a half later, you're being asked to pay money back. No, so that's not going to happen. They're not going to be forced to uh, to repay any of that money. But um, the the National Guard and DPS, who controls the National Guard, did, you know, they acknowledged that this happened, that they didn't follow the policies and said basically, you know, hey, we know about this now, not going to happen again in the future, and, you know, so. So I guess they've got something in place to prevent that mistake from occurring next time there's a hurricane or something that causes the National Guard to correct, come out for this correct. period they of are time. Now, they are now aware of the state law. Yeah, <laughs> always good to be aware of the state laws. Um, the interesting thing, really, from the audit, um, that I found was that it was very clear in that it said, you know, this is only an audit into this one very specific thing on how much money the National Guard spent. This is not an audit into all of state government's reactions to Hurricane Matthew, uh, which kind of applies to me that maybe there's more coming down the pipeline and we're going to yeah. be hearing more. I don't know if that's been a focus for uh, Beth Wood's office to look into some of that, but um, I think we're now at a point where a lot of the state money that's been spent uh, in response has has been spent, has gone to different things. Um, and I think some people were surprised to see where some of the money went. I went to the, the Disaster Relief Committee a couple weeks ago and uh, come to find out that uh, some of the money that I think it was Department of Agriculture or uh, Wildlife Resources or somebody had for disaster response was used to uh, deal with beaver dams, uh, that they needed to blow up some beaver dams. I guess in in dealing with the stream mitigation issues in response to Hurricane Matthew, the, the long tortured explanation for how this was relevant was that uh, because of Hurricane Matthew, there was more debris, uh, like trees and stuff. More trees and stuff means more materials for beavers to build dams. They build dams, and then you have problems with stream and water flow that can cause problems to property. So huh. it's a hurricane-related thing. Um, and they're actually more in that direction because uh, when I talked to uh, Representative John Bell, who's chair of the House uh, Disaster Relief Committee, and asked him about are they going to spend more money in this year's budget on Hurricane Matthew-related stuff, and he said, yeah, we're looking at, you know, how do we uh, sort of smooth out the flooding problems in the future. If we get a lot of rain, how can we make sure that uh, the water goes where it's supposed to and we don't have a lot of property damage? And apparently one thing to look at, beaver dams. Well, if we deploy the National Guard to uh, take out some of these beavers, uh, we At least they won't get paid too much. the right amount. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Great tie in there. <laughs> Speaking of National Guard, uh, you had another National Guard story. Apparently this is your, uh, your beat this week, Will. I guess um, so, yeah. Uh, they might be deployed not in the state, but to the Mexican border as a result of uh, President Trump's recent request. Uh, do we know if that's going to happen for North Carolina? And if so, will they get paid too much? Uh, <laughs> it's looking fairly unlikely that it'll happen. Um, as people probably know, uh, President Trump wants to deploy the National Guard to the Mexican border, um, but uh, basically to do it legally, he can't just order it on his own because you can't have the military enforcing like law enforcement stuff on U.S. soil, that's martial law and you can't do that. Um, and so he has to 
basically asked the governors to help out. So right now he's saying that he wants the uh, the governors of the four border states, you know, Texas, Arizona, New Mexico, and California, to contribute troops to, uh, you know, to helping uh, with border security down there. Um, but should note, obviously, this, you know, comes with some pretty big political implications. Uh, you know, Trump has made border security a, you know, big component of his presidency, even though, you know, if you look at the number of people arrested for illegally crossing the border, it's, I think, something like 46% lower than it was in 2000. It's, you know, really on the decline. Um, and so, you know, there's a question of, you know, are these border state governors going to comply with this? Uh, last year, a uh, couple uh, governors uh, basically said that they wouldn't do this when Trump floated a similar proposal, and that included some Republican governors, uh, uh, like from Utah and Arkansas. Uh, so, you know, if he can't get enough troops uh, from the border states, maybe he'll start reaching out to other, you know, other states and other states, and who knows, you know, maybe somewhere along the line North Carolina could be called upon. But it, it yeah. looks like it's pretty unlikely. At yeah, point. and then you'd even then have uh, the question of whether if, if other, other states are refusing, would Roy Cooper, a Democrat, be willing to go along with uh, Trump's border security policies and commit North Carolina's troops in, in that direction? Yeah, I, I reached out to the governor's office uh, right after Trump announced this and uh, wasn't able to get in touch with them, but I did hear back from Ford Porter since then, and he told me basically what you just said. He said that you know, they haven't been asked to do this, and he said even if they are, quote, there are still important questions about cost, duration, and mission that should be answered to ensure this is necessary and not simply political. Okay, so that's a pretty clear uh, indication of the direction that uh, Roy Cooper is thinking about this. Yeah. Um, so I guess if you're if you're a National Guard member, uh, enjoy that uh, extra boost in your paycheck from a couple of years ago and, and maybe sit tight for a while because it uh, doesn't look like you may have to be headed to the Mexican border, at least in the short term. Doesn't look like it. Yeah. All right, uh, let's move next to uh, the world of uh, facts and fact-checking. Uh, Andy's been busy with uh, some of the uh, political races going on, uh, particularly the uh, probably one of the most uh, hotly contested uh, primary races in North Carolina right now, uh, down in the 9th Congressional District, where uh, Robert Pittenger, the incumbent Republican, facing a pretty strong challenge from Mark Harris um, and a less strong challenge from another guy whose name I can't remember right now. Um, so what's the latest in that race, Andy, and uh, who's on which? side of uh, factitude as far as this goes well uh so far this week we've fact-checked uh mark harris pittenger's opponent you know pittenger he's in north carolina congressional district nine and uh that's expected to be a tough race to keep for republicans uh this november uh little did they know it would also be a tough seat for pittenger to keep in the primary he only uh, won by about uh, 134 or five votes in uh, 2016, uh, against he only beat Mark Harris by that much. Now Mark Harris is back, and essentially, what this has become a race to the right. Uh, Mark Harris is testing and challenging Pittenger on almost everything he's done, saying it's not it's not conservative enough or it's not out there enough. And the most recent thing was border border funding. So you, our audience may remember late March uh, the. Congress uh, passed a bill, the omnibus bill, and Trump signed the bill, which kept uh, the federal government funded. Well, included in that was some uh, money to go towards securing the border, you know, uh, with fencing and other things. But it didn't include, um, like, funding specifically for prototypes that Trump had asked for. Anyway, 
if you'll remember, Trump was, you know, sort of wishy-washy on whether he liked the bill. He liked it, and then he didn't. And then after he signed it, he liked it again. Um, but uh, Harris came out and said that by supporting, by voting for the omnibus bill, Pittenger opposed funding for the border wall. And so by his logic, because the bill didn't fully fund Trump's wall, uh, Pittenger was therefore against funding for it, which uh, that's tough logic to wrap your head around. Uh, so yeah, I kind of need a flowchart for that one to see where, where right. things are going. Like if you don't fund it in full, then you are opposed to it. Is essentially if you want to boil it down to the basics of uh, that logic. And so we gave that a false. Um, Mark Harris said this was on Facebook that he said, you know, Pittenger stands against border funding. Uh, that's not true. Uh, he voted to support funding, uh, border wall funding in full last year. That bill, that spending bill didn't go anywhere. Uh, this one obviously did, but it didn't include full funding for the wall, just fencing and other things. Well, plus, hasn't Pittenger been pretty vocal in support of the wall and other sort of border security measures like like most other Republicans in Congress? He has, but one thing that might come back to bite him is that he once referred to the the wall as a euphemism, saying that what Trump really means is just securing the border in general. It's not a literal wall. It's a, it's a wall in our hearts and minds separating the two countries and keeping the immigrants right. out. The wall is also <laughs> comprised of border patrol agents and things like that. Anyway, and so uh, Mark Har- when we asked Mark Harris's people about uh, the claim, they pointed to that and said, you know, he's against the wall because he doesn't, he thinks it means other things, you know, uh, drones, what, you know, whatever, whatever it takes uh, to secure the border. And Pittenger, uh, you know, sort of doubled down and said, well, there, there are places along the border where you can't build a, you know, a barrier like the Great Wall of China. You can't just build, it, you can't, it's not like built, putting Legos up on, you know, something. It's you, it's not possible. There are some places where the Border Patrol wants fencing and other places where it wants a large concrete barrier. Um, and some places where it, it, they may not need anything. So anyway, that's where they're coming at Pittenger on the border wall. Um, at today's Thursday, we're about to publish a second fact check, uh, this one on Pittenger, uh, who said in a newsletter that the omnibus bill uh, did not designate $1 for Planned Parenthood, which uh, technically, in the most literal sense possible, the words Planned Parenthood is not true. in the bill. They are, <laughs> the words Planned Parenthood are not in this bill. However, uh, Planned Parenthood still receives funding through the, uh, from the federal government through Medicaid and other grants that they can apply for, you know, um, and still receive. And so uh, that got a half true from us, uh, and that should be online Friday morning which, if you're listening to this... It's ha- probably Friday, because we're probably not right. posting it the day we're right. recording it here on, here it on Thursday. Passed. So if something really crazy happened Friday morning, uh, go to newsobserver.com to read about it, because you ain't going to hear it here. That's right. So that's where we are. Uh, Mark Harris is pulling... That, you know, it, Pittenger is saying, is declaring a victory, e- even when really there's not one to be had. I saw in researching the Planned Parenthood fact check, lots of conservatives who are uh, mostly at think tanks, angry that Planned Parenthood it still receives money at all. Um, the thinking behind it is, yeah, they, they get money f- from Medicaid through, 
you know, STD screenings and things like that, mammograms, you know, if, if a patient comes in and needs a service and then they perform it, they can get, then get reimbursed from the federal government. Well, some conservatives say we don't want them to be eligible for any money because when you give them money, you don't know if they're going to spend it on, you know, STD screen, more STD, you know, testing, or if they're going to spend it on, like, abortion equipment. So uh, that's where we are. Uh, this seems like uh, a race to the right, and the winner of this primary will probably face a man named, I think his name's McC- Dan McCready. Dan McCready. And he... He's at, a lot in fundraising, I think. At first glance, seems similar to Connor Lamb, who won that special election in Pennsylvania. He's ex-military. Um, he's, yeah, uh, I think, is he an attorney? I, can't uh, I know he's a little bit more moderate. I've actually uh, heard some critiques of him from uh, more liberal members of the Democratic Party who worry that he's not sufficiently liberal enough. But, of course, uh, sort of national Democrats, I think, are looking at his candidacy thinking in a district that's currently held by a Republican, he might be their best shot, much like Connor Lamb in Pennsylvania at uh, unseating the Republican in this case. So yeah, we'll, that's a pretty heavily Republican district. I mean, I think Pinger probably won it by 15 or 16 Yeah, points. if you look at the past election cycles and just how the uh, turnout went, I think the 13th district, uh, which is U.S. Rep. Ted Budd um, in the Winston-Salem area, that's the uh, less heavily Republican of the different Republican-leaning uh, congressional districts in North Carolina. Um, so that just in terms of the numbers in past elections, is probably the Democrats' best shot. Um, but I guess there is a feeling that uh, Pittenger or potentially Harris, if he wins, might be um, easy, easier to beat than some of the other uh, Republicans in the state like Mark Meadows. Um, and even with the demographics there in a wave year, it could be good for Democrats. Right. And the difference between Ted Budd and Pittenger is, you know, you have to wonder how much money is Pittenger having to put into this primary? And if he wins... You know, if either of them win, how much money are they going to have left over to fight off McCready if he is the Democratic candidate? And, I mean, that'll be tough. I think Larry Sabato has it as a lean Republican, but uh, as opposed to a likely Republican, which I think George Holding is up here around Raleigh in District 2. Um, But if right now, the way things are going, they're all about loyalty to Trump. And that could backfire. Yeah, all these statements they're saying now to show that they're the Trumpiest Trump supporter of these two in the primary, uh, all of that can be used in a campaign by Democrats if the Democrats think that their message is being anti-Trump and tying the Republican incumbent to the president. I saw a tweet from McCready today that described Pittenger as the quote-unquote Breitbart candidate. Uh, And... That's interesting, considering that uh, many observers would consider him the more moderate of the two. You know, if you were going to, you know, sp- split hairs between Harris and, and Pittenger, but um, it's going to get ugly, and then it's going to get uglier. Yeah, for sure. And I saw the there is a Civitas Institute conservative group's uh, poll out this week that shows Pittenger in the lead uh, with a fairly decent, I think, I think it was like eight points or so over Harris in the latest opinion poll, um, but. 
still ways to go before May. A lot of people still undecided in that race, so um, we could probably break either way as we get closer. Uh, I did want to touch on what you mentioned, George Holding, briefly, um, and the race there, uh, he's not facing a particularly competitive primary, but there is uh, a pretty uh, busy primary uh, among some lesser-known folks uh, to be the Democratic opponent to George Holding. Um, it's a three-way contest between uh, Linda Coleman, the former lieutenant governor candidate, um, Ken Romley, who's a businessman from Raleigh, who's a first-time candidate, and Wendy LMA, who's a transgender veteran from Johnston County. Um, that got a little bit fiery this week because uh, May's campaign uh, put out some information uh, about uh, Ken Romley's voting record. Uh, apparently, uh, according to the State Board of Elections, he was an unaffiliated voter until June of last year when he registered as a Democrat. Um, and uh, fun fact, your primary voting history, if you're an unaffiliated voter, uh, is listed on the Board of Elections website. So you can go and see whether someone took the Republican ballot or the Democratic ballot, uh, or the Libertarian ballot for that matter, in any of the uh, primaries. And for Romley in 2012 and 2016, he voted in the Republican primary uh, for president, uh, which uh, the May campaign is saying that uh, shows that he's not a true progressive, that he's a wolf in sheep's clothing, um, and that should raise concerns among Democratic voters who are uh, trying to decide who to support. Uh, Romley's campaign counters that uh, he was legitimately a Democratic voter in those years. Uh, he voted for Obama both times. He voted for Clinton in 2016. But in the primary, he wanted to uh, vote against Trump in 2016, at which point he apparently voted for John Kasich, he's saying. Uh, and then 2012 uh, was when he wanted to vote against what vote in favor of what he who he believed to be the uh, least likely candidate to defeat Barack Obama. When they initially sent me the statement, they said he'd voted for John Huntsman. But I did a little fact checking on that, and it turns out John Huntsman wasn't on the ballot in North Carolina in 2012 because he dropped out in January. The uh, race was in May. So when I uh, pressed them on whether he had indeed voted for John Huntsman, uh, they said he wasn't, couldn't remember exactly who he'd voted for, but knew that it was not Mitt Romney and that it was somebody he thought was going to be less competitive a candidate as Mitt Romney. He's so unrepublican that he doesn't even remember who he voted for. Yeah, they, they were all the same. He just, he picked a name so long as it was not Mitt Romney, who I guess he thought had the, the best shot at Obama and didn't want to, uh, him to have that shot. So uh, that'll be an interesting race to watch. I think there was another development in that this week where uh, the candidates all tried to be as anti-Sinclair broadcasting as possibly. Romley started that off by saying he was not going to advertise on Sinclair stations. Uh, we looked into it a little bit. It turns out Sinclair owns two stations in the Triangle, and they are the least watched two stations in the Triangle. So not advertising with them, uh, probably not too hard for, for Romley to do and still be able to uh, get his message out. Uh, the May campaign said that she won't be advertising at all because she doesn't have the kind of money to do that, so she's not going to be buying any more TV ads. And I think Coleman also came out and said that uh, she's not going to be using uh, Sinclair Broadcasting. So uh, uh, a convenient uh, whipping boy for the uh, Democrats trying to show that they don't like what uh, Sinclair has done with the making the TV anchors say the anti-fake news uh, script. Uh, so we'll see if that continues to pop up in, in different races. Uh, lastly, I do want to touch on... Um, since we were on fact-checking, uh, something we missed out on last week because we uh, skipped a week on the podcast since uh, we had a, a spate of slow news, but uh, it meant that we didn't get to hear about the latest in the uh, Representative Beverly Boswell uh, saga. Uh, Boswell has been a fairly active voice on uh, Facebook in the last month or so um, and said some things that have uh, gotten her some headlines. So, Andy, you checked into the, the latest, and I think we have a uh, rare PolitiFact rating for it uh, that uh, you may want to share with us. We do. Uh, so... 
our some of our listeners may remember Beverly Boswell from mm, last month when she referred to uh, students, high school students at a school in Roxborough, which. And aside, not in her not in her district, which is Dare County and counties around there. She referred to them as Tide Pod eaters. She uh, was upset because she saw a rumor online that uh, the principal of this school, again not in her district, uh, held an assembly to talk about uh, the national walkout. And she heard that I, I guess she interpreted that as an endorsement of the walkout. Uh, come to find out, he the principal held the assembly to just simply read the names of the victims of the Parkland shooting and to hold a moment of silence. And his aim was actually to reduce the amount of, uh, you know, walkouts and reduce the political rhetoric and make it more of a memorial type thing. Anyway, that didn't stop Boswell from going on Facebook and um, accusing the principal of this school uh, of uh, allowing the Tide Pod Eaters to run it. Uh, so she made headlines for that, and then... And she's still, I guess, ex- this did not cause her to stop talking about the Parkland students and the reaction among high school students to all that? It did not. It did not. And so uh, later, she went back, she took to Facebook once more and uh, was talking about guns. And uh, this was when the, I guess, what was it, the March for Our Lives uh, happened. It was after that. Uh, she was going. She had a back and forth with some of her, I guess, constituents on her Facebook page, and she accused the March for Our Lives speakers of wanting gun control, not only wanting gun control and to repeal the Second Amendment, but also to murder people who wouldn't relinquish their guns to the government. Uh, and this was all in, I think, a post that started with her posting a picture of the Parkland teens and saying that they're out there to take our guns. Right. That It all started with that. And then uh, it, there were side conversations from there. And so we looked into that and we, we wondered, had, did any of those speakers, a lot of the speakers were survivors from the Parkland High School. And so uh, we looked around on, on YouTube stories. We looked at uh, our own marches here in North Carolina to see if anyone was recorded saying, you know, let's let's kill the, you know, gun owners or whatever. And we didn't find any of that. Uh, we didn't find any uh, evidence that any speaker even suggested uh, the forceful or violent uh, removal of guns from households. Uh, it's just not out there. Yeah, did and she cite her sources at all when pressed on this? Or? So when we approached her about it, they, uh, her spokesperson said that she was referencing a sheriff out in western uh, North Carolina. I think it's in Buncombe County, where a Democratic yeah, uh, can- County. Yeah. where a Democratic candidate for sheriff, uh, he was talking about gun control, or talking about you know uh, the need for more gun control in his opinion, and he uh, invoked. Charlton Heston, who at one point, you know, said that people could take his guns from his quote-unquote cold, dead hands, to which the sheriff reacted. The the, the candidate, the the sheriff. Yeah, he's not the sheriff. The sheriff's candidate, (laughs) he reacted by saying, okay, which a lot of people interpreted as, you know, oh, he's going to come get us. I think he said it was a poorly done joke and apologized for it later, but. Right. Uh, So, her Boswell's spokesperson said she was referencing that, but as far as we can tell at PolitiFact, uh, 
that candidate did not speak at any of the March for Our Lives rallies, which is what she was talking about on Facebook. Yeah, yeah. So, the comment was at some candidate forum or something that was not connected to March for Our Lives. Further, uh, she said many speakers. So even <laughs> if he did speak at one of these rallies and suggest something like that, which we found no evidence of, uh, he is merely one person. Uh, so she got a pants on fire for that. Yeah, a rare distinction from PolitiFact. That, uh, takes a takes a little effort to get beyond the mostly false and false categories and get into flaming pants territory. That's right. That's right. We'll be uh, lighting up a pair on the uh, lawn of the uh, News and Observer in a bit to um, observe this uh, particular uh, occasion for PolitiFact. I wish we <laughs> don't did. make us fact check you, Colin. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, uh, I think that covers the uh, news of this week. Uh, We're going to take a quick break, and then we'll be back with Headliner of the Week. I'm a retired school psychologist, and helping people was my thing. After my stroke, when Meals on Wheels started, I was on the other end of the stick, so to speak. My name is Julius Gaines, creative writer, poet, photographer. One in six seniors faces the threat of hunger, and millions more live in isolation. Drop off a hot meal and say a quick hello. Volunteer for Meals on Wheels by donating your lunch break at americaletsdolunch.org. This message brought to you by Meals on Wheels America and the Ad Council. Headliner of the week, 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 headliner of the week. Who's hot? And welcome back. It is indeed time for everyone's favorite segment, Headliner of the Week. I am not uh, Jordan Schrader. I'm Colin Campbell filling in this week. Um, And uh, we'll go through our panel as usual and ask for the uh, top story or headliner of the week. And uh, then I'll pick out of those nominees to decide uh, who wins the crown this week on Domecast. Uh, Let's start off, since he has the microphone in front of him, Will Doran, who's your headliner of the week? Um, well, I'm going uh, for the North Carolina Beer Month. Uh, the other day, uh, Governor Cooper was declaring April to be a number of different official months. I think there were probably, what, 16 or 17 official months that we're celebrating in April? Yeah, you, you can go on the governor's website and see all the proclamations he's issued. And there's a lot of things that we need to be aware of this month, including alcohol in general in a more negative sense, but also as of uh, this week, a new proclamation for Beer Month itself. Right, well, you know... Uh, Gotta gotta acknowledge both sides of the issue. Yeah, <laughs> but um, but yeah, uh, got a obviously ton of great breweries here in North Carolina, and I think the uh, the governor himself was over at uh, Ponysaurus. Uh, what was that today or yesterday? Yeah, Thursday afternoon. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, stop at uh, the Saltbox Seafood Place <laughs> and then uh, Ponysaurus. Which, if you're going to spend a random sunny Thursday in Durham, that's probably not a bad a way to do it. No, Ponysaurus is always packed on the weekends, so he was smart going on a weekday uh, yeah. with some of the crowds. Uh, yeah, it's a it's a it's a daycare over there. Yeah, <laughs> but um, you know, as the as the resident uh, beer writer, in addition to my political job, uh, gotta gotta give a shout out to uh, Beer Month. Yeah. Stuff happening all month, so different ways to try new beer and experience uh, the ever-growing craft beer scene here in North Carolina, and the governor's doing his part to uh, get the word out and make sure that awareness is at the level it should be. Oh, yeah, and there's a website for it. There's Twitter and Facebook pages, so anyone who wants to uh, learn how to officially participate can uh, go out there and figure it out. All right. Thanks for that, Will. Uh, NC Beer Month in the hat for Headliner of the Week, and we'll go next to Andy Spay. Andy, who's your headliner this week? Well, Colin, I'm going to nominate your story about Charlotte. Oh, how kind. Oh, oh, yes. (laughs) The Queen City, uh, it was reported by you today, uh, (laughs) did not 
make the final cut uh, for Amazon HQ2 finalists because they lacked education. More specifically, they lacked higher education. According to the Charlotte Chamber of Commerce CEO Bob Morgan, he said that uh, they don't have enough institutes of higher knowledge. Uh, so Charlotte is my headliner of the week for not being smart enough. It is true. I mean, I mean, true. Uh, no knock on UNC Charlotte, but it's there all by itself, and the Triangle has a few more. Uh, universities around to uh, educate the future workforce of Amazon, whereas there's only so many UNC Charlotte grads you can hire. And uh, I mean, Davidson's a pretty good liberal arts Davidson school. Davidson is, yeah. It's, it's a tiny. small school. Yeah. <laughs> no knock on Davidson. My boss's son is there right now, but <laughs> uh, Charlotte area has uh, certainly got a little ways to go in the, the higher ed department. And, you know, if you graduate from uh, UNC or Campbell or any other fine triangle universities like some of us at this table, uh, it's attempting more to stay in the Raleigh area than it is to, to move to Charlotte after graduation. So it's understandable that that would be the case. So uh, uh, Charlotte's uh, higher education scene, I guess we could term it in the hat for its uh, Amazon success. Lack thereof. Lack thereof, yes. I mean, I guess we can at least give them some uh, patronizing props for you know being smart enough to identify the problem. Yeah, I mean, this was you know bold words from the Charlotte Chamber CEO. This was not some outside group. This is the guy who is actively promoting the city of Charlotte's business community in every way and said that that was the big problem for Amazon. He was also quick to note that Amazon loved the big airport. They loved the light rail and the fact that the tech workforce is growing there. But again, they wanted more higher ed like in the immediate area and not three hours across the state. So triangles in the running for Amazon, Charlotte, not so much. All right. uh, So last but not least, uh, Lauren Horsch. Lauren, who's your headline of the week? So this is absurd. Um, I like things that are absurd. Tell me more. So this didn't technically make headlines, uh, but it was... Twitter's a headline. I mean, it was kind of the talk of the town at the General Assembly. There was an onion, just, just a yellow onion sitting on the picnic table out front of the legislative office building for about three days. No one knows who left it there or why it was there or who owned the onion in the first place. It was a mystery, I should point out. This is a very popular picnic table. If you're a legislator who smokes cigarettes, you were at this yeah, picnic the, table the, a lot. Yeah, the RJR caucus meets there. Um, so, yeah, it's popular. And so it was just, it's a very widely used picnic table, but there's just an onion. And at first I thought it was like a flower bulb because the, the journal suddenly gardener was out there doing work. And then, yeah, some of the legislative plants were changed yeah. out this week. So maybe so maybe it was hers. Just, <laughs> maybe Sarah just left the onion there. Um, no, so the onion was removed today. Um, and much to the chagrin of many of us, we no longer have the onion to look at every day and be like, oh, I wonder how you got there. And uh, I think this really started because um, I would have to give it up to uh, Kirk Osteen, who's a staffer over there, who was like, Lauren, you need to talk about the onion. Because I tweeted a photo of all the pollen on the ground around where the onion was on the picnic table. But wasn't there a lighter there that was there briefly? After so the some... lighter was there today, this morning, when I went there about 845. Was someone trying to smoke the onion? <laughs> I would sur- If you are trying to smoke onions, do not do that. Um, I don't know. But yes, there was a li- there was a lighter that had bingo written on it. Um, but yeah, so just the General Assembly onion. Um, and if you go on Twitter, my boyfriend kindly made a NCGA Twitter graphic about it, and it is the photo. Is that of- uh, NCGA onion fan art featuring yes. none other than Phil Berger and Tim Moore? <laughs> yes, it is fan art for the General Assembly onion, and it says it shall not be forgotten. Ah. <laughs> so yes. Um, 
General Assembly onion in the hat. All right. So we got three choices this week. We've got NC Beer Month. We've got uh, Charlotte's uh, failings in the higher education department uh, costing at Amazon. And we've got the NC General Assembly onion. Well, um, those are all extremely strong choices. I like beer. I like making fun of Charlotte. Um, I'm not a big fan of eating onions, but I like quirky things in weird places. So there's that. Um, but uh, given that I started out this podcast by pointing out that it's been kind of a slow news week because the legislature hasn't been doing much, I feel like the symbolization of that is the fact that we're talking about about a piece of a vegetable sitting out in front of the legislative building, and that's what everyone at the legislative building is talking about because there is so little actual legislating occurring it, right it, now. It, it should be noted that a lobbyist on Twitter today like, mentioned me and said, I want to pay my respects to the onion. That's Guys. Yeah. This is this is what happens when you hang out at the legislative building all year round, even when the lawmakers are not voting on things and passing bills. Is it possible it's an art installation? I'm not one. I don't understand art, but maybe... I was wondering if it had something to do with the satirical publication, if they were starting opening up a bureau in Raleigh to more effectively satirize the happenings of North Carolina. Uh, and maybe this was their, their way of uh, building some buzz around that. If, if so, they've succeeded. There they go. <laughs> All right. So an onion is our headliner of the week, and uh, Jordan is probably going to take back the hosting reins next week, so we're a little bit less <laughs> off the rails. Uh, so for Lauren Horsch, Andy Spay, Will Doran, I'm Colin Campbell. Thanks so much for listening to us. We'll talk to you next week. You've been listening to The Domecast, a production of the News and Observer and the Insider State Government News Service. You can keep up with the conversation by reading Under the Dome in the Daily Print Edition or online at newsobserver.com. The Insider is found online at ncinsider.com.